What's going on, ladies and gents? Robert Sykes, KetoSavage.com. And today, I've got special guest Kristen Bear on the line for you. She is a board-certified family medical doctor, and we dive into all things keto and medicine. She was a former vegan, has been for five years, or was for five years, I should say. Uh, so we talked about that, kind of why she transitioned out of that. Uh, she, from there, she went to paleo, so we talked about that. And then we dove into keto and what she's noticed having been keto for as long as she has. And then we talked about how keto's kind of changed the game a lot uh, within the medical community, kind of what the future of that may look like, some some possible pitfalls, some obstacles, and some ways to overcome them. So really enjoyed the conversation, learned a ton from Kristen. She is a wealth of knowledge. Hope you learned something as well. Sit back, relax, enjoy the conversation. And we're live. Kristen, how are you? I'm good. Thanks. How are you doing? I'm doing great. For anybody that does not know, which would be everybody, this is our second take on the podcast. We had a pretty good conversation the first time, and then I literally lost all the audio. My computer crashed right after we ended the recording, and I just felt terrible. So I appreciate you jumping back on here with me. Yeah, no problem at all. It was a good conversation. Hopefully, uh, we can recap the highlights of it. Yes, yes. Well, let's start with... um. I guess this will be the second time I hear a little background from you, but give the audience a little little background on your your past, kind of what brought you into the space, and kind of I know we talked about you uh, doing quite a little lot of different you know, nutritional protocols prior to finding your way into the low carb keto space. Yeah, so my background, I uh, was diagnosed with lupus uh, probably about ten years ago, and. At the time, we didn't really get much nutritional training in medical school, but I was convinced there was something I could do to treat my autoimmune symptoms, which were a mix of body aches, joint pains, fatigue, headaches, just general malaise and not feeling well. Um, I was convinced there was something I could do outside of traditional medication. So I started reading about alternative treatments and I came across a book that led me to a vegan diet as a means of controlling autoimmune disease. So I was vegan for about five years and I did not feel any better. I actually think my symptoms got worse and had a whole bunch of other problems creep up during that time, like a B12 deficiency. I started to develop um, horrible migraines, ulcers. I was extremely irritable and anxious and depressed and went on antidepressants. And it was just, it was a rough few years. So after five years of the vegan lifestyle, I thought this is not working. I need to try something else. And I discovered Rob Wolf's uh, work with paleo and mm-hmm. gave paleo a try. And pretty quickly, I started to notice some improvements and definitely had more energy and my symptoms uh, from lupus definitely improved, but they weren't quite completely alleviated. Um, and I took it up a notch and did the paleo autoimmune protocol, which was great, but I found it a little challenging to stick to for those who aren't familiar. It's it's pretty restrictive. You eliminate dairy, grains, nightshades, nuts, and seeds. And it's, it's a pretty restrictive diet, but admittedly, I, I did feel better when when I was on it. Um, but all this time, I just, it still was not feeling a hundred percent. I was on and off of steroids plus daily medication 
for lupus. And I was on more and more medication for migraines, which were like the one thing that were not getting better. And if anything, they were getting worse. They were getting and, worse while you were paleo? Yeah, yeah. And, I, you know, some of it you attribute maybe it's stress, lack of sleep. During this time, I was going through residency, which is, you know, not not the best years of your life. <laughs> and, you know, there there are other factors that could have played in, but I was really, really becoming debilitated by daily migraines. I was throwing up and almost dysfunctional when, when I had one. Um, and that led me to a book called The Migraine Miracle by Dr. Josh Turknet. And that was the first time I had ever heard of a ketogenic diet. All through medical school and residency, never heard of this way of eating, um, even as a treatment for epilepsy, never crossed our studies. So I researched it for a while first because it was so out, out of the normal for what we were, were taught, right? You know, we're taught to eat low fat, high fiber fruits and vegetables. And then this keto diet's telling us the opposite, eat a high fat diet, eliminate grains. And I really just wanted to research it on my own first to make sure it wasn't going to give me a heart attack. And I, it just kind of opened up this whole new world of medicine that I had not been exposed to before. And all this research and how our nutritional guidelines came to be, and I felt confident it was safe to try. And within a couple of weeks, my migraines were completely gone. And I was able to wean off of four medications pretty quickly, and uh, which I thought was miraculous after having tried everything else. Um, just simply changing my diet was the most effective treatment for migraines. And what I wasn't expecting is that my autoimmune symptoms all seemed to get better as well. So after that, I started researching more and more about keto and other applications and the mechanisms of how it really worked. And I've, I've been a huge advocate for it ever since. That's awesome. I, I want to dive into, so like you, I mean, most doctors and medical professionals, like when they go through med medical school, residency, like you're, you're given a very minimal, uh, I mean, you, you touch on nutrition very minimally throughout all the teachings. Uh, I mean, I've, I've heard some people say it's like not even a full page on a textbook, hardly. Um, with with yeah. that said, like when you're doing this, I mean, you're you're taught and told about how you got to, you know, mitigate any unnecessary saturated fats and whatnot. So it's like it's like not even coming from the textbook. It's just kind of like hearsay, like the word on the street, so to speak. But then you start actually incorporating that style of eating and you notice improvements within a few weeks. It's kind of crazy. Yeah. That, that's exactly it. We really did not have any nutritional uh, education during, during those years of medical school and residency. If anything, we learned about vitamin and nutritional deficiencies, but not what the proper human diet is. Mm -hmm. And it is just kind of going with the norms of what everyone else is doing, limit fat and go with the uh, ADA guidelines and the American Diabetic Association. And it's just it was not doing anything for me. <laughs> and uh, quickly I came to realize where these guidelines came from and it's kind of faulty cherry picked science and with people who have a financially driven agenda. And it's a little concerning that so many health professionals and doctors succumb to all of these guidelines without really knowing where they came from and the dangers of, of what we're doing. Yeah, it is. It is mind-boggling. 
backtracking a little bit more, when you were uh, vegan for five years, when when you were you doing like a uh, like? Because I'm assuming you were pretty knowledgeable about you know vitamins, nutrient deficiencies. That's what you were studying, basically. Uh, did you notice that like most? I feel like most vegans have um, a nutrient deficiency over a period of time by maintaining that lifestyle. That's honestly what a lot of people state when it comes to like all like on the podcast and whatnot. They're talking about how prolonged vegan diets leads to some type of malnutrition, nutrient deficiency. Were you pretty keen, keen did on that and trying to be um, just on top of your nutrition and top of your supplementation and whatnot while you were vegan? Yes, I definitely tried. And you, there's like with keto, there's various ways to do a, a vegan diet. You can eat whole foods and be very clean about it, or you can eat, you can still eat processed junky carbs all the time. Um, and I really tried to eat a, a clean diet and I ate a ton of beans and lentils and leafy greens and peanut butter was my go-to. Um, I was, I was always hungry when I was vegan and I could, I could eat a jar of peanut butter in a day, which not healthy, not recommending it, but I did definitely try to keep an eye on, um, a bunch of, you know, vitamins and minerals, specifically protein and B12, which people become deficient in. Mm-hmm. And what I thought was interesting was we're always taught it B12 deficiency takes years to develop. And I developed a B12 deficiency less than two years in, you know, we're taught it's, it's five, six years uh, without animal products, but no, it, it hit me pretty quickly. And that's with supplementation. So um, I was not doing uh, intermuscular injections. I was doing sublingual and, you know, not taking it every day as, as much as I could, but I thought I was taking enough where, where it would be a while, but no, I definitely developed uh, B12 deficiency pretty quickly. So is there like, I don't know, I feel like there's so many supplements out there for a vegan-based diet that kind of minimizes that, yet even in spite of all those supplements, you feel like so many people are having these deficiencies. Like, is there is there any way to like really hedge your bets and make sure you're doing it right? You know, I think it, it, takes, it, it takes a lot of planning and skill uh, with someone who is qualified to assess the nutritional status of foods. And what I think people forget is just because a certain food has however much of this vitamin or that mineral or protein, that does not mean your body's able to absorb and utilize it. And I think that's the tricky part. Uh, Just because you're eating all of this plant-based protein or getting you know, your B12 supplements, how much is your body actually absorbing and utilizing is a completely different amount. And that is, it's such a individual uh, concept too, that there isn't a one size fits all. So it does take a lot of testing and a lot of planning, and you really have to stay on top of it and getting your levels checked frequently and being in tune with how you feel. And I think, um, and, and this goes with, with every type of diet, people kind of get tunnel vision and they want to believe that the diet they're doing is perfect and working best for them. And they tune out some of the red flags that could be signaling that there is a problem. Totally. Totally. So when you switched from that to a paleo approach and you started incorporating meat again, did you notice like a pretty sudden change with the introduction of meat? Yes. I think chicken was kind of the gateway. <laughs> I started with chicken. And I remember thinking it was the most satisfying meal I had had in years. 
And um, after that, it led to fish and then and red meat following. But my energy and my moods improved right away. I'd say that was the the biggest thing. And I was, like I mentioned before, when I was vegan, I was anxious and depressed and just very irritable all the time. And within, a, I don't know, I, it wasn't long, within maybe a month or two of incorporating meat back in, I weaned off of my antidepressant too, which was a big deal for me. You know, I hated saying I was on antidepressants and um, I felt better without them. And it was just really mind opening that adding meat in and just, I think a lot of it was the fat, mm -hmm. um, omega-3 specifically that, that really helped stabilize mood and energy. With all this, you know, evidence and research that points to the benefits of having a, you know, meat in your diet, um, and just like the anecdotal evidence, like what you've experienced yourself, is it, is it still kind of crazy to like hear all the medical, um, recommendations of minimizing meat intake? Yes. I mean, it, it really is. It's, it's a very frustrating part of my job and there is some basis. I mean, we don't know all the long-term effects of, um, a, a very meat heavy diet, like a carnivore diet. I do think there's a lot of benefit and it's the ultimate elimination diet, but I do definitely have some concerns still with the amount of saturated fat for people with genetic uh, varieties. For example, with the APOE4 alleles and APOA2, there are some variations in how people metabolize saturated fat um, that I, you know, would maybe pause uh, for for these people before saying, you know, eat red meat ribeyes every day of the week. Mm -hmm. But for in general, I do think it's safe to eat saturated fat in, in certain quantities. And some people are completely fine and can tolerate much higher limits. But I think in general, chicken, seafood, red meat should be part of everyone's diet for the bioavailable nutrients and the nutritional benefit that, that comes with eating these foods. I feel like there's a, you know, especially a benefit to people with like autoimmune issues uh, from the, the sake of it being such an elimination diet, you're kind of wiping the slate clean and let your body have a, uh, you know, a fresh start, so to speak. With, yes. with people that are totally healthy, don't have the autoimmune issues, are they, are they missing anything per se from not having the vegetation? I mean, I'm definitely carnivore-esque I'm not hardcore carnivore but I eat predominantly meat-based uh for sure but I mean am I am I losing anything by not having ample amounts of vegetation yeah so that's a that's a great question and definitely an area of debate and I think what people will jump at you first with is fiber they're going to tell you you need fiber for proper digestion and health and satiety and if you're in ketosis and you're producing uh beta hydroxybutyrate I don't believe there's a need for fiber in the diet. And the reason is fiber is fermented in the colon and it produces a substance called butyric acid. And that kind of nourishes the cells of the colon. And when you're in ketosis and producing these ketones, the beta hydroxybutyrate, and you're, you're getting a very similar uh, substance and it's believed that the butyrate is going to serve the same function as the butyric acid that's the product of fermentation of fiber. So I do think that 
you are okay without fiber in your diet. Yes, there is going to be alterations of the gut microbiome, but that isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's just different. Um, with dietary changes, if you're eliminating plant food or going more meat-based, you're going to have a change in the gut microflora. So, we, you know, this is an area of a lot of research right now, and we don't know what the long-term effects are going to be, but it doesn't seem to have a detrimental effect right now, at least in the short term. And it can even have a positive uh, benefit. And I think there is a lot of long-term benefit to having low amounts of insulin, preventing insulin resistance, having the anti-inflammatory benefits of ketones, as, as specifically in terms of heart disease and neurological disease. So I don't at this point, I, I can't say with 100% certainty, but from the research that I've done, I don't think you're missing anything by eliminating plants from the diet. I think it's a personal preference right now, and it depends on the individual and the epigenetics and their genetic makeup and just their taste and preference. But in general, it's, it's an individual feel, and I think you're going to get great nutrition if you eat a nose-to-tail uh, carnivore diet. Yeah, I agree. I feel like with any any major switch in your primary fuel source, you're going to have uh, some like digestive rebound, so to speak. I mean, whether you're switching from, uh, you know, a lot of vegetation to plant or to, to carnivore or the other way around, or even if you're like, uh, you know, keto, but eating a lot of salads and everything still, and then you try to go and dabble in carnivore, there's like a two to four week adaptation period where like you're your gut has to get readjusted and your bathroom usage may be all over the place during that adaptation period. But once you equalize, I feel like it pretty much levels out. Yeah, I agree with that. And it's, it's true. It's just people get nervous. Like, Oh, it's been a couple of days. My digestion is off. It's going to take longer than a couple of days to adapt. I think that's a great time frame, two to four weeks and give it a, a solid two to four weeks and it's going to be a little different from for everyone. It depends on what your uh, gut microbiome is to begin with and what your diet was like before you made the dietary changes too. I think what a lot of people do notice right away when they eliminate more plant food is that the bloating goes down, um, which is a nice benefit. So you talk to patients who say, you know, every time I eat, I just feel bloated and distended. And you take away the fiber, the grains, and plant food, and that goes away pretty quickly. Yeah, I feel like that's like raw food, raw vegetables. I mean, if, if you're consuming a bunch of raw plant foods, like that's all going to get fermented in the gut, and you're going to have the gases that come as a result of that, which is why people feel so bloated. Whereas if you are if you are going to eat vegetables, like me personally, I always try and veer towards something that's you know already fermented, like a kimchi or some type yes. of sauerkraut or something. That way it's not going to have near the fermentation process inside of me. Yeah, it makes a huge difference. And just going back to like when I was in my early 20s, I remember not eating all day long if I wanted to feel slim and address that night just because I knew if I ate something, anything, I was going to feel bloated and more distended. And it's great now, like once you figure out that it's just the the plant-based food, that's going to cause that. If you, you can go ahead and eat eggs or chicken or beef that day and be fine, not have to starve yourself and still feel great when you go out that night. Yeah, totally. It's liberating. Yes, it really is. What about like a lot of carnivores, um, 
they, they talk about plants as anti-nutrients basically so they've got the like the oxalates for example in this vegetation they not they, they have nutrients in them but because of these uh, anti-nutrients it's basically causing more of a net negative effect than a positive effect what's your take on right. that right yeah, so oxalates are getting a lot of attention these days. And Sally Norton, if you're familiar with her work, she she is a great resource uh, when it comes to oxalates. So we always talk about the benefits and nutrition of plant-based foods, but yeah, there's just not much attention to the anti-nutrients. And the whole premise of, of antioxidants and getting this you know, benefit from plants is the concept of hormesis is where you're putting low grade stress on the body and it sort of rebuilds itself and comes back stronger or it causes production of the body's internal antioxidant glutathione but people ignore the fact or they don't understand the concept of how antioxidants work that you know you are placing some stress on the body plants are not don't want to be eaten. Their whole premise, they want to reproduce and replicate like humans. That's their biology. So they have these built-in components to distract their predators um, or poison their predators or uh, other animals that want to eat them, if you will. So their biology and their, or their operating system is very different than the human operating system. So there are anti-nutrients and chemical reactions that occur when we ingest plants that are going to cause this low-grade stress on the body. And there's varying levels of toxicity or anti-nutrients that come along with that. And there's also phytic acid, which binds to other vitamins and minerals and prevents their absorption. That's going back to talking about the bioavailability in these plant-based foods. Just because a plant has on the label or, you know, on the package that it has 70% of the daily recommended amount of iron. That does not mean you're going to absorb all of that. And that's largely mm -hmm. because of the phytic acid and some of the anti-nutrients that go in it. Gotcha. Gotcha. Are there, I mean, with, with animal products, there's like, I mean, there, there are definitely some are created better than others, but I feel like generally speaking, a poor quality animal product is still going to have much less of a net negative effect than a high quality plant product. I mean, I may be wrong in assuming that, but I feel like there's just a lot more negative to be had with all these anti-nutrients and, and acids and whatnot that could be somewhat poisonous. No, I agree with that. I, I completely agree with that. And there is, I do have a lot of concerns with farming practices uh, in, in this country specifically. And there's, varying levels of quality of meat and seafood. But in general, I, I do think even a lower quality meat is going to be more beneficial than a lot of the plant-based food. I think one thing that I would definitely caution people against uh, is like the heavy metals in a lot of the seafoods, um, depending yes. on where you're getting and sourcing these fish, for instance. Uh, I used to live in uh, Spokane, Washington, and the, the river was so you know, bad with heavy metals that you were not allowed more, to eat more than one fish a year, which oh, is wow. crazy. <laughs> um, but I think that, like, stuff like that causes, you know, there to be a, a frowned upon issue with uh, ingestion of meat. But I feel like if you're conscious of that, you know, knowing where your food comes from, you can mitigate any of that on the front end and, and not have to worry about it. 
Yeah, that that's very true. And th this is a little out of my area of expertise, but there are binders and, and other supplements you can take to help bind the heavy metals and toxins like spirulina and, and other uh, sources to help mitigate some of that, that effect. But again, that's, that's a little out of my scope. I know Dr. Mercola has done a lot of work with that and uh, would be a good resource, but yeah, sourcing, sourcing is important and especially with plastics and the oceans and things as well. I think if people have the option to buy higher quality meat and seafood, it would definitely be to their benefit. Totally agree. Totally agree. So, so what is your area of expertise as it relates to the medical field? So I'm a board certified family uh, physician and I'm actually studying to take a second board exam in obesity medicine, which will be in February. And I plan to take my practice and to a uh, full-time uh, bariatrician and helping people manage the disease of obesity and all the comorbidities that come with that, specifically diabetes and hypertension. And uh, just really want to kind of dive into lifestyle and uh, nutrition and help help people get the proper education and diet to help manage their disease. I feel like working in family medicine like you do currently, and you'll probably see the same thing when you transition to the uh, bariatric surgery and whatnot, or bariatric uh, clinic. Do you notice like just certain patterns, like pattern recognition in a lot of the people you've worked with, uh, like with regard to lifestyle habits or nutritional habits, like, you know, uh, people that are much healthier tend to, to veer a certain way versus those that are unhealthy all tend to follow a similar pattern. Like what are some of those patterns you recognize? Yeah. I mean, there's, it's, it's very basic And what I used to take for granted is common knowledge. You realize people are still very unsure about. And one of the biggest things is sugar sweetened beverages. And okay. in family medicine, I deal with a lot of pediatric patients and adults and it's shocking to see how many people are still drinking juice and soda is their main form of liquid during the day. Um, there's one thing I, I'd like to promote quickly is get those out of your diet completely. There's no no need for sugar-sweetened beverages. Um, other things I notice is people who exercise and specifically lift weights tend to pay a lot more attention to their diet. And what I I do really worry about is sarcopenia, which is uh, decreasing muscle mass, especially as, as patients age. And I think establishing a good resistance training program, weightlifting, or just body weight exercises early on um, is a is a great thing to do. But in general, I think when patients start one aspect, and if it's working out or trying to change their diet, the rest kind of follows. It's like they start seeing some success and then they want to take it to the next step. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, in general, the healthier people, they work out regularly. They do some sort of strength training. They don't have sugar sweetened beverages. They limit fast food. Those are kind of the big things. Yeah. And I, I never cease to be amazed at how, how much, people drink these sugar sweetened beverages my brother is, is is bad about it he uh he's gotten better but he used to drink these fanta drinks and i didn't even know oh, what, yes. what was a fan what a fanta was and i looked at the label <laughs> and one serving is like 79 grams of sugar like it blew mm -hmm. my mind isn't that great and there's people that drink several of them a day 
and uh, kids specifically, it's, it's, it's crazy. I mean, you'll have someone who will lose 10 pounds in a month just from eliminating soda from their diet. Well, what I don't understand is there's so many alternatives like Zevia. You ever, you ever drink Zevia? I have not tried it, but I, I, I've heard good things about it. Yeah, I mean, it's just, uh, it's it's basically water that's sweetened with stevia, uh, but there's like literally a Zevia alternative for every popular soft drink out there. Like there's like a Coke version, a, a, yeah. you know, cola. I mean, there's there's everything. And it's like, to me, I mean, I don't have a, a very well, I'm not a connoisseur of soft drinks by any means, but mm-hmm. I can't tell the difference. I don't feel like I'm missing out. So I feel like that would be an easy, easy switch. It would make such a huge impact. Yeah. And I think that's a great point. These little switches do add up. And I'm not a huge advocate for artificial sweeteners, but stevia is one where I, I personally drink it on, on occasion. Um, I love uh, Rab Wolf's Lament, the mm-hmm. electrolyte supplement with, with stevia in it. That's kind of my thing right now. But um, yeah, I, a lot of the artificial sweeteners, I think, have have some side effects that are going to be unpleasant, but stevia is the exception. I think that's a great alternative for sugar. Yeah. Stevia monk fruit. I feel like that's pretty, pretty safe for the most part, for sure. Yeah. And and you're absolutely right about, you know, people like that train and work out. Cause when you do that, um, like when I first started working, I didn't, I didn't give any thought to nutrition really. I thought the emphasis was on the training. But mm-hmm. you start following a, a healthier lifestyle, and then it just branches and buds into so many different other aspects. And nutrition is bound to follow because you want to maximize any of the work that you're putting in the gym. And I don't know, it's like there's there's a lot of misinformation out there in the gym spheres. Like <laughs> the locker room talk is is often filled with bad nutritional advice, but nutritional advice is oftentimes better than no nutritional advice, even if it's misinformed. And there's just so many right. people out there that have no common knowledge to like the basics of what even a macronutrient is like that. That's Greek to some people. Yeah, it, it is. Um, it, what I really like to talk to my diabetic patients about is limiting their carbohydrates specifically. And this isn't even getting into keto. This is just let's decrease your carbohydrate consumption. And some of the questions that I get, what we would you and I would probably be like, of course, that's a carbohydrate. They really don't know. Mm-hmm. They're asking about rice. They're asking about oatmeal. They're asking about whole grain bread. And you realize I, you really have to start with the basics with people and explain what a carbohydrate is, what a protein is, what a fat is, how your body's going to respond to that in terms of insulin. And it's, it's just it's amazing how little nutritional information people get. It's kind of funny because like you and I, we are in, in the keto sphere. Like we're, we're rubbing shoulders with people that are, you know, making waves. We're making waves. Like we know a lot of, we have a pulse basically on, on the keto space. But like for us, I, I feel like we, we've, we've been here for a while. We've kind of questioned whether or not we're at the peak of it all, whether it's starting to start going down. But then you start hearing and talking to people that just don't really know much about nutrition at all. And it's like, wow, there is so much work that we have to do still. So much work. I know it's it's great. You have these platforms such as Instagram and Facebook where you can collaborate with like-minded people who are just as excited about keto and, and having benefits and 
that branch out into carnivore and it's great. And you almost forget about the other segment of the population, which is the majority that have no idea what this is about. And kind of my next project going into 2020, I really want to help clear up the myth of keto just being a fad diet and the concept of dirty keto, which has become kind of my pet peeve. People, oh, I hate it. Right. That they can eat all these keto snacks and alternatives and keto cookies and baked goods and bacon and butter. And it's, it's not all about just being in ketosis. It's the nutrition that comes from the foods that you're eating as well for optimal health. And there, yeah, I think there's a lot of work to be done still. Yeah, that is, that's a good point. Cause like, there's so much, uh, I mean, like keto has gotten so big now within our circle that it's, it's like people, I don't know, they, they feel like they can kind of, it's like it's almost reverse rebounded in a way. Like you, you go super strict into it and then you start to like loosen up. And I don't know, some people go even stricter and some people loosen up and become incredibly lax with it. But I feel like the whole dirty keto thing is is really popular right now as well. And I've, I've never really been one. I mean, I feel like dirty keto is better than a bunch of processed carbs. Yes. But I don't necessarily think that, I mean, a lot of people that are doing dirty keto know better, you know. Right. And, you know, I have a, it, it isn't even a, a true patient. It's a, actually one of my um, nurse's husbands, I've, I've been helping on the side. He's a diabetic and he has some weight that he wants to lose. And so we've been talking to him about keto and he's doing a phenomenal job and he's lost some weight, but within a few days, we got him off of his insulin and his hemoglobin A1C has gone down and his blood work just looks incredible, but he's doing a dirty keto version. And I, I find myself unable to argue with him right now because he's made such good progress. Mm -hmm. I'm hoping eventually we can kind of get him into some more nutrient dense foods, but yeah, even, even dirty keto people are having improvements in their metabolic health, which is hard to argue against. Yeah. I feel like it's a good, I mean, if it's a stepping stone, then I'm all for it. Like when I first started keto, I was you know, I I was going through all the different recipe books and learning how to make keto cheesecake and keto, like all these lookalike yeah. meals, basically. Um, but now I feel like the, the longer I've been adapted and become, you know, self-sufficient with my nutrition, it's like I don't desire that anymore. I don't crave that anymore. I don't feel like I'm missing out or sacrificing by not having it. So I don't have to make some kind of lookalike meal that has subpar ingredients. I, I was the exact same way. I definitely started as more of a dirty keto and transitioned into a cleaner version and noticed I felt better. And I think some of, sometimes I'll, I'll still get sugar cravings. It's definitely not as much as when I was eating a plant-based diet where I craved sugar every day, but I, I'll notice I'm more in tune with, with cravings when I eat a healthier uh, keto-based diet. And it's usually because I'm deficient in something else. I'm not getting enough protein. I didn't get enough fat. I'm dehydrated. I'm tired. I'm stressed. And I feel like it allows you to become more in sync mm -hmm. with your cravings and your appetite. And you learn to trust your appetite again. Totally agree. I do feel like, you know, whenever I do have like the keto sweets or whatnot, I notice uh, an increase in, in cravings for more sweets though. Like again, not near as bad as when I was eating carbs, but I still yes. notice an uptick in my desire for those foods. And I feel like I'd be keen to get your your opinion on this, but there's a lot of, you know, sweeteners that are 
or like they have a zero glycemic index score, so they're not really raising your blood glucose at all. And I've tested and, and not seen an increase in blood glucose, but I'm I'm curious to see if it would result in an increase in blood insulin because you're still sending a signal to your brain that you are ingesting something sweet. So I'm assuming it's going to re- result in a, an insulin response, right? Yeah, and that is the million-dollar question and what we don't often hear about when people are talking about the glycemic index. Just because your glucose is not raising, that doesn't tell us anything about what insulin is doing to keep your glucose level stable. And that's also how people kind of miss the early warning signs of prediabetes and diabetes because they could have normal blood sugar levels, but that could be requiring a massive amount of insulin to keep it normal. And just these artificial sweeteners, maybe your glucose is staying stable, but it could be all, it could be uh, spiking your insulin regardless. So a lot of them, I I do stay away from um, except for stevia and, and monk fruit, like you said, but I think you also raised a good point about, you know, if I do have, some keto treats or snacks. If I eat them too often, I start to crave sweetness again, and mm-hmm. I just you have to stop it. <laughs> you know, I think that's that's a slippery slope, especially for people who have had a carbohydrate addiction or are trying to lose weight and trim down. And a lot of that, a lot of these people who um, are trying to lose weight, they do have some degree of insulin resistance. They do need to be careful with the artificial sweeteners. Are you familiar with this concept of uh, insulin resistance due to long-term keto adaptation? Basically, you uh, remove carbohydrates from your diet for so long that your body fails to know how to function in the presence of carbohydrates. Um, And I've heard a lot of people talk about this lately, and I'm just curious to know if if you've seen much research on that. I haven't done a lot of research on it, but from what I have done, and this is kind of a normal physiological adaptation, just like when you're transitioning into ketosis, there's an adaptive phase. It's going to take a while for your body to efficiently use ketones. And sometimes that takes a few months for people. And when you eliminate carbohydrates from your diet, your body's going to have an adverse response initially, and then you're going to adapt again. So if you've been carnivore for several years, and then you start adding some carbohydrate back into your diet, you might have an elevated glucose response. You might have some uh, signs of insulin resistance initially, but then after a couple months, it does go back to baseline and it does go back down. And it doesn't even take a couple months for some people. Sometimes it's a couple weeks to adapt. So I'm really not concerned about that. I think it's a normal response and there's an adaptation phase and in your body's going to self-correct. I don't think it's going to lead to diabetes or permanent insulin resistance with any type of long-term consequence. Yeah, that, that's been my thought towards the whole idea. I, I think, you know, like, like you said, with anything, there's going to be an adaptation period. And I feel like since glucose is and a very efficient fuel source, like your body burns it very readily, it's not going to take even as long to get back into use and that as it does for ketones to become efficiently used. So I feel like people's like people have legitimately swayed away from the keto diet for fear of becoming insulin resistant, which is the most backwards thing I've ever heard in my life. Yes, I, I agree with that. I think the best, you know, I do, the, I like the concept of metabolic flexibility and being able to use whatever substrate 
your body has available um, yeah. for energy. And with that being said, I do think it's not a bad idea to take small periods away from being completely carb free. I'm not saying that needs to be on a weekly basis or even a monthly basis. And nor does that mean indulging in cookies and chips and cake, but bringing back, you know, maybe some sweet potato or a healthier source of carbohydrate, even if it's a hundred, 150 grams for a few days and making sure your body is properly utilizing glucose without these spikes. I think that's a, that's a, fairly reasonable thing to do to keep yourself metabolically flexible. But if you don't, I don't think it's going to cause any problem. And I think staying in ketosis is one of the best things to do to keep your insulin levels low and prevent insulin resistance. Yeah. I'm going to play devil's advocate with you here. Cause I am definitely on the side of just strict keto. I mean, I don't say suggest that everybody does that, but me personally, I, I've been strict keto for years and I don't feel any desire or need to, to introduce carbs. I mean, like metabolic flexibility for me is, is not something that I feel like I need because I doubt I'll be in a position where I am forced to eat carbs. I feel like there's an abundance of food in the day and age we live in and I don't have to yeah. resort to carbs. Um, do you think that, we kind of talked about this already, like there's not really any long-term disadvantage to staying strict keto that you're aware of? Not that I'm aware of, no. And, you know, there's plenty of people for medical reasons, such as epilepsy, or they have a GLUT1 uh, transporter deficiency that do stay in ketosis without going in, into a metabolically flexible period where they're utilizing glucose again. And I think that's fine. And, you know, it's, it's the concept of bio-individuality. Mm-hmm. And if you feel best in ketosis, I'm I've not seen any evidence or research to suggest you need to break that. It's all an individual preference at this point. And I think as far as the health goes, I have seen no, no reason to say you need to break, break out of ketosis. Totally agree. Totally agree. I want to dive into the, what's on the horizon for you. So you're, you're getting uh, another board uh, test going through the bariatric program. So what all does that entail exactly? Right. So there's, so most people are familiar with bariatric surgery and getting the either sleeve or banding or uh, gastric bypass. And within the past few years, and especially with the growing obesity epidemic, there's become more of a need for non-surgical bariatricians that help manage not only the, the surgical patients, but all the patients that are trying to fight obesity in a non-surgical way. And that's kind of what I want. Well, that's not kind of what I want to focus on. That is exactly what I want to focus on. Where I'm kind of deviating from the norm is that a lot of the focus for non-surgical bariatrics is on weight loss medications. And we do have some, some great medications that have come out, but like with any other medication, there's a lot of side effects and adverse reactions and possible complications that can arise from them. And in my preparation for the exam and all the conferences and seminars, I feel like we're just dropping the ball on lifestyle and nutrition. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's mentioned for a bit and it's just not, not the focus. And part of the reason is just the structure of the medical system. We're 
really being forced to see as many patients as possible in a day. And sometimes we have five or 10 minutes to spend with the patient. And as you know, that is that doesn't even skim the surface for a proper amount of time to talk to someone about overhauling their diet and lifestyle. So I am hoping to get this board certification out of the way in February. And then I really want to have a more unique weight loss focus where I can hopefully spend a decent amount of time with patients on a regular basis, teaching them more about uh, lifestyle and nutrition and different options for them. And if, if needed, you know, we can do the more traditional medications to help assist and stuff. I really, really want to focus on the nutrition and lifestyle. And that's going to be a bit of a challenge uh, in, in a traditional hospital, just because the pressures from hospital administration and everything. So hopefully I can get uh, my own clinic started at some point and kind of do things my way and hopefully achieve some success for patients. Yeah. I mean, that would be awesome. I feel like I've, I've talked with several doctors in this space now and, and one of their largest frustrations is they've got all this knowledge and experience with, you know, how keto can be a healthy alternative to what people are doing. But I mean, you, you cannot, for someone that doesn't have, that's not literate in this, uh, nutritional protocol. I mean, you cannot expect to, them to walk away after a five-minute conversation and have any direction whatsoever that's applicable. I mean, you have to actually sit down and give some some serious time to them. And the way everything's structured now, I mean, that's just not feasible. And it's 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 frustrating. So I, I, I can see where the frustration comes from because it's a broken system. I mean, you're basically penalized if you're not seeing X number of patients. And the way the world works around money I mean, hospitals are structured so that they can prescribe medication and see a lot of a lot of patients. That's just not really a recipe for a successful nutritional education. Towards yeah, that's it exactly. I mean, it takes two minutes to write a prescription for someone. It takes an hour to properly assess their nutrition and start to pave the way for change. And unfortunately, in medicine, you're not paid for for quality of, of time spent. You're paid to do procedures and you're paid by volume. So the hospital administration, they want you to pump out a lot of patients every day. And that's just not conducive to the, the type of work I want to do right now. You feel like there's a, like a bubble, so to speak, in the medical realm that could bust? Like when you look at prescription drugs, for instance, and the cost of prescription drugs and the rising uh, obesity epidemic, as an example. I mean, the the drugs are getting ridiculous. I mean, people are not able to afford these forever, and the insurance. I mean, I feel like there's got to there's got to be a tipping point at some at some point in the near future. I would imagine. Yes, it, it it's going to implode. It's just a matter of time. The costs are completely out of control, and there's really nothing being done to get that contained. Medications are out of control, copays, deductibles. It's it's going to burst. And what's sad is we have such great technology and innovation and resources in this country, but accessing them and providing quality care is still lacking compared to other models in different countries. And it's just it's it's incredibly frustrating for patients, for providers, and everyone in between. And I think. 
it, it is, it's just a matter of time before a, a major overhaul is coming. And I think, unfortunately, it's going to take some bad outcomes before, before it changes. Yeah, I feel almost pessimistic for saying it, but I feel like we're so stubborn and money driven as a as a as a nation really that we're not going to stop doing what we're doing as long as we're making money. So it's like it almost has to implode in order for us to open our eyes and recognize that there's got to be a better way. Yes, I actually share the same sentiment. It's it's unfortunate and I don't know how how to change it sooner or for the better, but just the whole landscape of medicine. If you kind of look at the rising cost of healthcare in the past couple decades, you'll see on, on the graphs, at the same time, there's been this huge rise in the um, kind of middle management, all these administrative positions. And it's just insane. There's people that have never treated patients with business backgrounds that are now dictating how doctors and other healthcare providers are doing their jobs. And it's just crazy to me that people without any patient care experience are telling doctors how they have to treat patients, how many patients they have to see a day, and telling them to conform to all these, you know, guidelines and norms when there's every patient is different. You can't treat one patient the same as another. And I think that's, that's a huge part of the problem too. We have to get the business aspect out of medicine again. And I, as you said, it's all so money driven now. And once people start knowing how to make money from it, they're not, they're not going to relent that power. I think it's, it's really going to take a major overhaul to change this. Yeah. Well, what, what I'd love to see personally, just as an individual is, I mean, the way the way human psychology works, at least at least for me, is like there has to be a risk reward system in place, you know. So like for insurance, for instance, you know, I think it makes sense for people that are very healthy, you know, health conscious, nutrition oriented, uh, to to see a benefit from an expense standpoint, like towards their health insurance. Like they should they shouldn't have to pay the same amount that someone that has no care to learn, no no self discipline, no. I mean, literally eating fast food every day, like they're all lumped into the same equation and then charge the same rate. And it's mm-hmm. like, let's let's incentivize people indirectly by money. Like if, if money is the driving factor, let's incentivize them to save more money by giving them better rates if they actually take care of themselves and, and put the best foot forward to learn about this. I love that concept. I, I really do. And it, you're right. It's not fair that people who are taking care of themselves are paying the same price for those who, who really aren't. The only thing about that model that makes me a little nervous is who's defining what is healthy, especially in this day and age where there's so much battle between different diet forms like vegan versus carnivore. And, you know, what's the importance of cholesterol? I worry that government guidelines are going to mandate what's healthy and what's not. And, you know, if you eat meat, that's going to be considered unhealthy or something like that. It it makes me a little nervous as to who's going to dictate what's healthy and what's not. That's true. That's true. We seem to like open up our own board certified keto specific sanctuary with their own keto insurance, (laughs) their own keto doctors, their own keto healthcare system. It would just be like total 
Like we'll just ostracize ourselves from everybody else. <laughs> I I am all for that. Having my own keto clinic is is my dream. That's that's my goal. <laughs> Someday, hopefully, in the next few years, I can I can make it work and <laughs> give it, uh, cheap rates to people who are complying with the keto lifestyle. Well, shoot, if we can do that, then we can just lead by example, and hopefully, others you know that are not in belief at, at the at the front end will see that we're doing something right and yeah. follow suit. Right. But I think that is a great way to control costs, too. I mean, all the money that people spend on medications for their diabetes and all the complications that come from it and other lifestyle diseases, it's mind boggling. That's where you're really going to make a dent in healthcare costs if we can get these diseases under control through lifestyle. And it's just you're I think you're right. Incentivizing that is is going to be a great step in the right direction. I mean, looking at like type two diabetes as an example, I mean, I don't, what, do you know what the average cost of insulin is like for, you know, an average type two diabetic spending on insulin a day? Like what that breaks down to? Is it like a, is it like a public figure that's known? Oh, you know what? I don't know. I, I, that's a great question. I should know that. And I think it's, it's probably dependent on the type of insulin. If they're on like a Glargine plus, uh, uh, Lispro, like short acting, long acting combination. I don't know, but I, I'm, I'm sure it's not cheap. <laughs> I'm, I'm quite sure it's not cheap. And that's in addition to probably the metformin that they're on and maybe another oral agent. You know, typically insulin's kind of the last resort. Like once you exhaust all the oral medications, then you go on to insulin. And by then you're already having other complications. You're having retinopathy, you're having nephropathy and neuropathy, just all types of complications where you're seeing three or four different specialists on top of that. Yeah. And the solution is just more insulin. <laughs> yes. Isn't that crazy? Just it's, it's so backwards when you think about the physiology, you're treating this insulin resistance and lack of insulin sensitivity with more insulin yeah. instead of getting rid of the culprit, such as carbohydrates that are the reason people need insulin. Well, I'm excited for you to to roll out this this clinic of your own. Do you have like a, a rough timeline on when this is forecasted? So, if all goes according to plan, <laughs> I'm hoping once I get my board exam in February, hopefully work in a bariatric clinic for a year or so, kind of learn the the lay of the land, and get get all my resources together. Hopefully, in the next couple of years. We will we will see. That might be a, a bit aggressive, but I've I've got some good ideas going and and some contacts I'm working with. Um, I'm, I'm currently in Chicago right now, and I think it's going. It's just not a, a doctor friendly atmosphere in in Cook County here, so I think it's going to probably require a move as well, which I'm fine with. But I definitely want to get this going in the next couple years. Come to Arkansas. I think I'm the only keto person in Arkansas. We need it. Are you? <laughs> yeah. Hey, I, I'm, I'll go wherever, wherever I can make this happen. I will go. <laughs> all right. All right. Well, cool deal, Chris. And I'm excited for you. I really Thank am. You. Where, where can people go to find out more about you and follow along? So right now my main presence is on Instagram and I'm at doctoring keto and my website is getting underway. Hopefully I'll, I'll be able to put more attention into that after the sport exam is over. And that's also doctoringketo.com. But uh, Instagram's the, the best place to get in touch with me right now. Awesome. Are you, are you going to any of the conferences coming up? 
I am. I am going to be at Low Carb USA in Boca Raton in mid-January. And then right after that, I'll be going to the Metabolic Health Summit in Long Beach. I think that's like the first week in February. And then I want to get to KetoCon this year. I think that's in June. So awesome. Those are the big ones on my radar right now. Well, I will be at those as well. So I will look forward Excellent. to meeting you in person. Yeah, that'll be great. Until next time, Chris, you have a good one. And let me know if there's ever anything I can do for you. Thank you so much. It was great talking to you. Likewise. Take care.